online at kpfa.org. It is now 3 p.m. Stay tuned for a Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is January the 7th, 2014. <laughs> the weather's so cold, the zookeepers back east had to put the polar bears indoors. Weird, huh? I think all these extreme weather changes, uh, they're not getting the right treatment from mass media, you know. We're getting the wrong spin. Um here and there, you get, uh, you know, cables and documentaries showing us the long-range problems. But uh, I'm not sure how much of it's getting through to people, you know. Kind of like a nature of an emergency, but all I hear are these uh, speculations about the national economy. You know, what's it going to cost us? Yes. How much money attention is paid only, you know, when these weather changes get in the way of business, you know, buying and selling. Uh, my only contribution to our ecological, uh, what tragedy, uh, our ecological problems or concerns is, uh, well, I gave up my car in 1977. Now, that actually might count for something. Uh, I'm careless about the little things, still waste water. But, you know, I'm one of those, what is that, uh, passive people. I, I use the cold weather as an excuse to curl up with a book. I tell myself it's uh, wasteful, you know, to go out and take public transport even. Anyway, I am at the age now, or the stage, when I just want to curl up with history, biography, uh, even fiction, reading about Hans Christian Andersen. Uh, I'm going to do something with Hans Christian Andersen in a few weeks. I'm very interested in children's books. They seem to tell me, you know, what's happening to our culture uh, faster. Uh, the movies, you know, you can get a kind of the smell or the trends, but it's the children's books that tell us um, what's happening to our souls. This week, 
I was listening to the other public radio station, right? And there's a new book all about writers and about alcohol. This I found fascinating. I love best F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Crack Up. It's my touchstone uh, Fitzgerald's essay on alcohol and his crack up. It uh, It's very, what's the word? Uh, I, I think he's kidding himself, but still, he's only in his 40s and soon to die. Uh, I think that there are more causes for alcoholism than there are ships lost at sea. What strikes me about this new book, The New Spin, on writers and their drinking behavior was that the author, I'm not going to name her because I I don't like to be too critical, Uh, the author has limited herself to male writers. Now, this is is wrong. (laughs) I, I don't understand. She says she cannot write about women and their uh, drinking habits. She says it cuts too deep or is too close to her own experience. Well, jeez. I mean, then what can she possibly know? Most writers don't know much, and they don't even tell you what they do know. I just thought that uh, women and booze might be the sort of subject that would reveal some things, especially if this woman know some things about why why girls drink. We all know that it's disgusting and that there's nothing worse than a <laughs> a woman who's six sheets to the wind, right? Think of Edna St. Vincent Millay, lovely poet. She died with a glass of wine in her hand, sitting on the stairs. She was 58. Think of Lillian Hellman, ah, one of those women who drank to be what companionable to her her great love Dashiell Hammett uh, a lot of women get into drinking just to be uh, what is that loving and kind to these men that they love uh, even back in the late 18th century Mary Wollstonecraft indulged. Uh, She not only drank booze, but she was into laudanum, any drug that that was convenient, anything to help the pain of her existence. She died a rather hideous death in, uh, well, actually she had uh, what was called childbed fever in those days. She gave birth to Mary Shelley later to become a great writer. Anyway, the list is long. Many, many women, as well as men, were caught in this uh, romantic trap. You know how that goes. Uh, this notion that there's something, uh, what is that, uh, romantic uh, about suicidal behavior, self-destructive behavior. Think of Annie Sexton, a very heavy drinker, although I think there were other, many other reasons for her suicide. Uh, think of Dante Gabriel Rossetti, his love Lizzie Seidel. Uh, she was a sometime poet, but back in the 19th century, she took too much laudanum 
he, of course, took everything in sight. Anyway, on New Year's Eve, I usually go back and review my notes on the drinking habits of writers. And I thought that might be fun to share with you. New Year's is over. And, uh, and we can get on with this year. But I just thought it might be nice to review this uh, list I have because I do include women. I've noticed uh, how few women are quoted, for example, in books. Let's see. There's a book, the new Beacon Book of Quotations by Women. It's not all that new. It's been out for a number of years, but... Uh, the editor is Rosalie Maggio. Uh, I like Rosalie very much. We are old acquaintances. But the New Beacon Book of Quotations by Women was necessary because if you pick up the Bartlett's or, you know, most of the books full of quotations from women, you will find barely 2% uh, quotes from the ladies, I, I don't know why, when it comes to the master narrative, we are not included. Now, back in my notes, New Year's Eve, uh, it says here, I always consider giving up the grape. I consider and then I reconsider. <laughs> this year, it was Grey Goose Vodka, my excuse, is my conviction that drinking goes with scribbling. You know, that old notion, Elizabeth Barrett was a junkie. The question is, what were they drinking, all the literati? All poets are lushes, but not all lushes are poets. We've had a few sober poets and any number of sober writers, although not in Ireland. Uh, with the notable exception of George Bernard Shaw, who was perhaps pure spirit, and so didn't need any. <laughs> After one or two sips of vodka, I began to think in simple similes, the writer as a drink. Yes. Hmm. Henry Miller as dark beer with a chaser, Thomas Mann as after-dinner brandy on an empty stomach, Anais Nin as a strong, sweet, distilled liqueur. That sort of thing, that kind of image. Then I had another, another sip. Uh, just a sip of vodka. I began to see these people drinking. Sometimes, why? Jane Austen. Sipping lemon tea with minted leaves and sometimes looking out her window into the trees. Corlette, swallowing sweet breakfast chocolate, absinthe stains on the bedside table, an aperitif in the afternoon on the sly. In a cafe he never frequents, Virginia Woolf, <laughs> out for a treat, but only once a week, a long walk first, and then scones to go with it. 
George Sand smoked the little cigars first. Then she drank, oh, a few sips of whatever he was pouring. Later, she watered it down so that she could write while he slept. Sigurd Unset drank the mead of the medieval myth. Yes, she loved the 14th century. She was a Nordic maiden, Catholic to the core, the wafer and the wine. Hmm, my old pal Jake says that Sigurd Unset's a bore. So I told him to go take a flying leap in the fjord, after all. Did she not win the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1928? And Jake said, oh, the only time I read her stuff, hell, I, I thought she was an historian. And George Eliot, she took tea with the usual toast, but no liquor left when the party's over. He drank sometimes, but finally only when she did, and it was love without marriage, no fooling. Then I had another cup of uh, <laughs> the uh, Grey Goose vodka. I got a little lurid. A 19th century storm was raging, and I opened my windows and looked out over the moors, and there they were, the Victorian ghosts, the Christian souls muttering, mea culpa, mea culpa. I felt an acute attack of brontophobia coming on. Now, that name, Bronte, B-R-O-N-T-E, means thunder. So, brontophobia is the fear of thunder and lightning, but of course, it's them I'm afraid of. Heathcliff and the rest. <laughs> In my notes here, I have a footnote that uh, the father in that family, Patrick Bronte, uh, he changed the name from Brunty, B-R-U-N-T-Y, as he was in the uh, lower classes, he wanted to rise in the world, and so he took the spelling Bronte, yes. In my dreams, Emily Bronte stands slicing tomatoes and throws them at me. She took the largest slice from the center and dropped it over her head, just just pulled it over her head like a sweater. All the seeds turned to gemstones, and the wet red swam around her in a great cloak. The laughter of Pan poured from her throat. Still in the dream, I ran until I fell into the lurid mist of that third watercolor Jane Eyre showed to Mr. Rochester. I was drowning in the sea of Charlotte's picture, reaching for the gold bracelet around the neck of a black cormorant. I woke up 
drenched in sea salt sweat. <laughs> oh, for my sake, Charlotte, could you at least, in my dreams, take a real drink like a simple Irishman and put away the spirits of ammonia and treacle sin syrup laced with hot chocolate desire. I have another footnote here about the way Thackeray used to tell stories, uh, well, under his breath, to the men that had been invited to meet her. <laughs> they always talked about the character of Rochester and the fact that he, well, his cigars, the smell of his cigars, they took to be uh, lascivious. Of course, poor Charlotte, uh, <laughs> she never did quite get it when people told her that her book was about, uh, well, lust, you know. The wife of one of her publishers told her to be careful of her, her extreme romanticism. Anyway, Emily Bronte died, let's see, Emily died in 1848 at the age of 29, and I think she drank hemlock straight. Anne Bronte died the next year, when she too was 29. She asked to be taken to Scarborough because she had never seen the sea. They buried her there instead of at Haworth Parsonage. So Anne does not walk night after night the way the others do. Charlotte lived to be 39. She died of tuberculosis and pregnancy. I think it's time for me to go for a walk. <laughs> I walked to the store in the rain. This time, I bought a bottle of Burgundy. I got out my list. Ernest Hemingway. Hmm. Bourbon on the rocks, I suppose. What do I know? Whatever he was drinking, it wasn't that that killed him. F. Scott Fitzgerald, the drink that fires the dream and burns the body alive. Dylan Thomas, beer for breakfast and any and everything else. He never took coffee or tea, bitters all day, real booze when the work was done. Anais Nin, thimbles of disparate distilled liqueurs each day in her diary. Wine at formal places in gardens of prose poems. Blood when needed. Blood for lovers who couldn't, never would, or shouldn't drink. Gertrude Stein preferred food to drink, serving alphabet vegetable soup for an entree and beef tenderloin for those who eat words. Cakes and plum brandy for those who stay till the end. Melantha was one of three, each one as she may. And Alice. Melantha, here's my footnote here. Melantha means black flower. I think it is the first book that people should read if they want to appreciate. <laughs> to fall in love with Gertrude Stein.
What was Sylvia Plath drinking? Thistles. Yes, thistles. She drank them. Isaac Dinnison, Time and the History of the Heart of Ancient Woman. She could smell the sea of Africa before the land rose. Tony Morrison, Pack Up All Your Cares and Woes. Bye, bye, Blackbird. There was a time, she says, when Africans could fly. This was a time before salt. There are words for women, she says. There are ways to know a whore is a lover, a servant is a laborer, a mammy is a mother. Laughter and jungle red wine. Black women, she says, seem less alone. Look at the literature. Anna Karenina has no woman friend to trust. Madame Bovary had no auntie to straighten her out. All the way to that Irish trash, Scarlett O'Hara, white women in books seem to be going about the business of the acquisition of a male or males. And, of course, they are damned if they got them and damned if they don't. Tony Morrison writes now, as it comes out of then. Black woman wisdom doesn't divide. Joseph Conrad drank the salt from the sea and never set foot on land again. Mr. Kurtz, he did. D.H. Lawrence, oh, wine and wine and wine and wine and more of that. But well drunk for a dying man. T.S. Eliot, dandelion wine, dearie, laced with the blood of the lamb. Time, time to pour again. Gosh, I hope someone's counting my drinks. Elizabeth Barrett, drinking her tea, laced with laudanum, the wine of opium, the wine of love and leisure, with an Englishman of letters, and off to Italy for Baroque. She went to visit George Sand, Elizabeth taking note that although she did not observe Madame Sand to smoke, it was, however, deeply to be regretted that Madame Sand surrounded herself with so many persons of the, quote, ragged red or lower theatrical types. <laughs> Mary Shelley could have used a drink. Nothing could mask the odor of death in her life. The child stillborn and all those she loved, either dead or monsters, or both. Christina Rossetti drowned deep in the holy water at the font, then sips from her brother Dante Gabriel's unholy cup. Belladonna, Belladonna, deadly nightshade. A spiritual opium at last in the garden of Solomon, where she slept alone. Dorothy Parker drank gin from a flask 
in the ladies' room. She mixed drinks in public at cocktail parties with her heart tucked inside her handbag, sealed in a plastic wrap. Edna St. Vincent Millay drank wine from his grapes when he was around, but she carried her own flask, and she traveled. Emily Elizabeth Dickinson drove herself from drink, insisting thought could think, until at last she fell in love with death. The sweetest drunkard we can ever know. One more last time I reach for some wine. The year is done. Done, done, and temperance has not touched me. Come, fill the cup. The bird of time has but a little way to fly, and lo, the bird is on the wing. <laughs> ah, the Rubiot. That was for the kids in college. I remember how we loved to read Come Fill the Cup. Sappho drank the Aegean Sea in one long lost song. John Donne, quite undone by his dear dead wife, Anne Donne, swallowed his pride and published. <laughs> Footnote here. Anne Dunn. Anne Moore was her name. Anne Moore married John Dunn in 1601. She was 17. She died at the age of 33, having borne her husband 12 children, of whom seven survived her. Ah, sweet, sweet Sartre, John Paul drank every and nothing at all, insisting they were both the same. Samuel Beckett. Ah, Sam, the bone of the existential, existential echo, drinks the desert dry, a nihilist in love, no sweat, I suppose, I suppose I should mention the old man last. Oh, churl, drunk all, and left no friendly drop to help me after I will kiss thy lips. Haply some poison yet doth hang on them to make me die. Oh, that's Juliet. Yes, that's Juliet trying to drink the poison from her lover Romeo's lips. Act 5, scene 3. Ah, Shakespeare. Ah, I'm still watching the most wonderful uh, ten-hour, ten-hour Shakespeare series. It's called The Hollow Crown. It's got Richard II, and then it's got Henry IV, parts one and part two, and Richard III. 
it was running over this holiday. They had the hollow crown on PBS. I've got a copy. Paid for. My older son bought it for me. I can watch that 10-hour, that 10-hour series for the rest of my life. I can turn it on at bedtime, and it usually lasts until I wake up the next day. <laughs> this has been Jennifer Stone uh, trying to sober up. Until next week at this same time, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. In light, light em up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. Kill anything that moves. The Real American War in Vietnam is an explosive new book by Nick Terse. Dan Ellsberg says no book I've read in decades has so shaken me. Its implications for the likely scale of atrocities and civilian casualties covered up in our latest wars are inescapable, staggering. Nick Terse will appear with former naval pilot Philip Butler, a combat veteran, prisoner of war in North Vietnam for eight years, and now activist with Vietnam Vets for Peace. On Tuesday evening, January 28th, at 7.30, they'll be in Berkeley at First Congregational Church, 2345 Channing Way. There's wheelchair access at this KPFA benefit. Tickets at brownpapertickets.com or supportive bookstores. More information on kpfa.org slash events. Seymour Hirsch said recently, we still prefer kicking down doors to talking. January 28th, we'll only be talking.